This is the Planetary Potential Podcast. For those who are eager to explore entrepreneurship, innovation, and cross-cultural communication in exciting and interesting places around the world. And now, here's your host, Andrew P. Rowan. Welcome to Episode 5 of Season 1, How Do You Close a Million Dollar Sale? Raji Burham, co-founder and CEO of Amigo Cloud, shares the value of executive coaching, the steps he took to adopt a different mindset, and how he reoriented pricing in his proposals. Founded in 2013, Amigo Cloud offers geographic information system or GIS solutions for a variety of applications, including private industries such as mining and utilities, as well as government. Earlier this year, in May, Raji announced that Amigo Cloud had been acquired by Essential Services Group for $16 million. My conversation with Raji took place just after he had made the announcement at an event in Lima. An important reminder that opinions shared on this episode are those of individual guests. For more information, please visit www.andrewprowen.com disclosures. This was Raji's first in-depth interview after his public announcement, so let's kick things off to find out more about his experience thus far with Amigo Cloud. With me is Raji Burham. He is the CEO of Amigo Cloud. We are here in Comunal, which is a co-working space in Lima, Peru. And he just finished a fireside chat at a PECAP event upstairs and uh, has graciously taken the time to continue the chat down here. So welcome, Raji. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I understand that uh, you recently moved back to Lima from San Francisco. Can, can you talk a bit about what prompted that move and how has that transition been so far? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I don't even know what moving, like move back means, right? <laughs> so I, I, I guess I could say I moved out of Lima 17 years, no, 21 years ago, 22 almost, in 1997, 22. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, I've been living in the U.S. for that whole time. But the past couple years, you know, especially the last year, I've just been traveling a lot to see customers. So, you know, and I spent a lot of time in South America and I spent a lot of time in different cities in the U.S. So even though I lived mm-hmm. in San Francisco, really like last year, I didn't live in San Francisco. So you're officially based in San Francisco. Then. Yes, I guess so. And like <laughs> I still have to travel a lot to the U.S. I travel every week almost, or every other week. So I don't know. I guess I'm closer to some of the South American customers now. Okay. Yeah. So, so then the decision was more more of a logistical one. Yes. And more, I, more practical, let's say, than any sort of changes in the U.S., politically over the last yeah year. yeah no it has nothing to do with that I think it's more mostly for personal choice I think with Amigo Cloud what we have we have offices well in co-working spaces in different places mm. and so you know we have one here in Lima in Comunal uh, you know people work out of Seattle you know we had co-working space in San Francisco you know a lot of people work from home and so for us it's more important uh, the longitude, like the time zones, more than the actual physical place where you're at. Yeah. So you know, if you have internet, you can work. Right. And and so when you say time zone, are you referring to complementary time zones, in the sense that you uh, during your day here in the West, you have your output, and then 
there's another team perhaps in Asia that picks up on that? Or are you talking about having your whole distributed team in the same time zone? Yeah, it's mostly about having the whole distributed team in, in the same time zone. What happens, I think, at, at certain scale, we probably will migrate to the other option that you're mentioning. When I did Moldwogs, which was my first startup, we did work with people from Ukraine, mm-hmm. right? So it was a different, whole completely different time zone. And it was we were based out of San Francisco. And so, you know, there's advantages where, like, you know, you go to sleep and then you wake up and yeah. new features and new things are in the repo and they're done. And there's advantages, which is coordinating. So you're either going really fast because you're getting features done right away, a lot of stuff within the span of one day, or you're actually going slow because hmm. the communication lines are wrong and it takes you more than a day to fix yeah. something, right? So it depends on how you look at it. For us, I think it's easier to have everybody in the same time zone, physically in different places, and it's okay. Not to that we wouldn't hire somebody in a different time zone. I think we would. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, challenges, you know, talent is everywhere, so there's challenges about having somebody in different places. I've done it before, and it's just you have to get used to the the way of doing that. So then can can you talk about the in-person interaction? For example, do you have off-sites? Yeah. Uh, or do you have like a, a yeah. summit, an annual summit? Yeah, where once you a year we home? do, right? So like once, like last year, we have everybody coming into Lima, and that was the vote because most people wanted to get to know, especially the guys in the U.S. or whatever. So you know, you do events a whole week where we all work together, and it's really nice. You want to have that face-to-face interaction. Yeah. And and so, you know, rent it. We had a nice little party, and like one of the guys that. Uh, it's in our team. It's also like a relatively famous musician here in rock scene. So he did a concert with us with this thing in like the rooftop of one of the places. Wow. We rented a little yacht. And, Very cool. And it was it was fun, right? You want that interaction, but it's not the only face-to-face interaction. Sometimes, again, this year uh, there was a, a, an important conference for us. We're in GIS, so there's like an open-source GIS conference in San Diego, Fosfor-G, and you know we had some folks flying from Seattle and then some folks running from Lima and then, you know, some from LA and they go and get to see each other face to face during that conference. It's not the entire team, sure. but it's like people that are relatively, you know, need to work together on certain things. And so you get other opportunities to get the face to face, even if it's not the yearly gathering. But the yearly gathering is the one that really marks. And, and have you had voting yet for... This year's? No, we don't, but it's in December, so we're going to have to wait. A bit too early then. eh, You know, there are, I think a lot of them want to do somewhere in the U.S. And you might actually do that. It's just, I don't know if it's going to be San Francisco, the budget for that. So so in, in the Americas, where is most of the team? And uh, what what's the breakdown in terms of? Yeah, it's I mean we're it's 23 of us right now, and you know we hired two more, so it's gonna be 25 in, in the next month. Um, but we have folks in Seattle now. Um, the ones in California are moving into Seattle. We have people in Arequipa, in Lima, so those are in Peru. Sure. We have somebody in in Chile. We just hired somebody in Argentina. We just sent an offer to somebody in Brazil. We have, you know, just people, one, you know, we're hiring another one in Colombia. So there's people, like, here and there. But, you know, we use the traditional tools that you would think of to work together. So, like, even if they're physically separated, you know, we use Slack. We do a lot of Google Hangouts and stuff. So 
And there's a lot of teams that do that. You know, GitLab team is well known yeah. to do that. The WordPress guys are well known to do that. So we've adopted some of the you know, learnings from those companies to and adapted it to us, right? So we sure. do the same. Sure. So so now that you're you're back here in, in Lima, at least for the foreseeable future, yeah, right? Temporarily. Is there anything that you really missed? While you're away, and now that you're back, you're like, oh, oh yeah. I mean, listen, I love a lot of things about Lima. I mean, this is my home country, anyways, right? So I sure. love this place. Um, but I do have a love for the U.S. too. I mean, I've just been there for a long time, and you know, my partner, she's she's from there, and so I have ties there, right? Like, grew up there, have friendships that I've cultivated literally for decades, mm. and so. Um, you know, I do, but I also have my childhood friendships that are here. So it's, you know, and I travel a lot, so I don't feel like I'm in one place or the other. But there are things that that I love that I've missed a lot from being in Peru. The food was one of the things. You know, we have good food here. Yeah, I grew up getting used causa. to. Yeah, I mean, listen, yeah, I mean, we, it's a mecca of food. I think most people don't don't know that, but it is, you know. And it's got some beautiful places beyond Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu is great. Most people yeah. go get to see that. But like you've been to Piura. Like yeah. I don't know if you had time to go to the coast. Yeah. But the coast. Colan. Yeah. Well, whatever. I mean, like there's. Back out. Yeah. You didn't go to Cajamarca, right? You were close no. enough. Man, no. Cajamarca is beautiful too. Like we have yeah. the Amazon River that starts. We have like the entire rainforest. We got, you know, Cerro Siete Color. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Even just in the Andes, right? Yeah. That are beyond just what people normally do. So, like, I missed all that. I really did. What, um, what, what about the things that drive me nuts, though? <laughs> right? If you want to go, yeah. I, I'm gonna go there. I mean, <laughs> the things that drive me nuts is the lines, man. So, like, the moment that you get out of like the plane and everybody rushes into you know, like the lines for immigration. It's like, mm. oh man, I'm back in Peru, right? Like, you know, you contrast getting out of the plane in Houston and it's like everything is ordered, yeah. you know, like if your tag, if your bag has a tag that says, you know, priority, like you're guaranteed that it'll come out before the other ones or it'll be there, right? Like the little nuisance like that. If you yeah. travel a lot, I mean, it sounds so... I know superficial that you want your bag to be there when you get out, but man, if you travel all the time, yeah. you just want it there. And that time adds up yeah. in, in little slices. Yeah. And so here it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter if it has the tag or it doesn't, like, it'll be the last bag that comes out, right? Or like the lines, everybody trying to cut off in front of you, yeah. right? And it's, you know, contrast that in the US where like when you're, everything is efficient, right? Like lines, people know how to do lines. Like, I don't know if you, you will notice this, but you can go to any place in the U.S., mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter how hectic it is, if there is some resource that people need, automatically, without thinking, the lines form. Mm. Right? You'll see one, and the other one goes behind, the other one goes behind, <laughs> and it's just like an automatic response. There's nobody telling you, please make a line or whatever. It's just happens right huh. like in the u.s in, in peru yeah it's not like that man it's like everybody's trying to cut you off and like they all it, it seems more like you know something you would see in, in, in other countries and so like that drives me nuts and it seems so trivial but but it does and my, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a trade-off 
Yeah, my, my initial thoughts are the Brits have queues down even better than the Americans. Yeah. And the scene you describe in the airplane and... You'll notice it. You cannot unsee what I just told you. Asia as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I didn't want to say it, but it's like in Asians like that, right? Right? It's the same way. You know, love a uh, lot of things from the Asian culture. But like, you know, we all have a little quirks on things. Yeah. Right? And so... What stood out to me is uh, how little respect the drivers have for pedestrians here. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I'm talking about at crosswalks where there are speed Cultural, bumps. Yeah. And it says stop. So, I, and they'll just do a, funny. a cruising I got, I got a story for you that one of my programmers was telling me when he was in San Diego in the last conference, right? Yeah. Like, and it's in contrast. Like when my GIS director came in for our December meeting, right? It's like there was a crosswalk. There were lines. You know, white lines where you know, people are supposed to walk. Yeah. And he just started walking, right? And a lot of the times, all the people who were coming from the U.S., you know, they had to be grabbed yeah. by one of the locals. Like, what are you doing, man? You almost died. Because they would just try to cross and assume yeah. that people would stop. And like, no, 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 right? But you contrast that with, you know, when the guys from Peru are in the U.S. and they're trying to cross, right? And as soon as they're walking in, you know, my GIS director, same guy that almost got run over, he's just crossing the street in San Diego. And like the Peru guy just grabs and it's like, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, they're stopping. Yeah. You know, they're just gonna yeah. stop. It's just You gotta know the local context. Yeah, exactly. So it's funny because the same guy had two different experiences and it like kind of switched, right? When he was here and the other guy was over there. Well, and, I mean, to be fair, using that precautionary behavior yeah. is going to save your life for in sure. more places Listen, <laughs> when you travel a lot, you, know? you learn, you know, rules like, should I drink tap water, right? <laughs> is the tap water drinkable? You know, should I boil the yeah. things that I cook noodles with and things like that? So I, I got into the habit of consuming only bottled water, yeah, of, course, of course, having lived in, in Asia and, of course, that... That's a good rule of thumb here as yeah. well, other parts of Latin America. Uh, when I'm back in the U.S., sometimes it's it's a bit hard to switch yeah. between the two. Yes, for sure. And, of course, you know, want to be mindful of waste and, and consumption sure. of single-use plastics. Yeah. But have there been moments where you've forgotten of course. Like here I, in the last three weeks? There's times where I have to stop and like say, okay, where am I? Okay, I'm here. Yeah, this is valid. Like, I'm in Chile, for example, in Santiago, you can drink Hmm. But it's South America, and everybody's talking to you in Spanish, so you like associate. It's almost like I'm talking to you in English, so there's certain things that trigger to me, like, oh, this is how I should behave when people talk to me in English. So like, there's certain patterns that I will just do, and when I'm speaking in Spanish, it just switches to other patterns. But it just happens that, you know, in Santiago and Lima are very like similar in language, but like the you know, I just have to sit down and think it through, mm. right? So, um, so you're saying that between English and Spanish, there are certain associated behaviors yes. and norms that you naturally transition yeah. between. And is that something that you're aware of in the moment? Or is no, it something it that you look out. back on, maybe replaying situations, it, it, and you're like, yeah, like, if this had been in English, this situation, it would have gone a different way. Yeah, for sure. And, and that doesn't just happen with you know food and water it happens you know when you're in front of a customer in sales 
right? Like the 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 way that you do sales or how you interact with a customer in the U.S., for example, is very different than the way you interact with one in Latin America. And you know, the jokes are different. The way that you connect with the other person is is different, right? And to actually be able to do a sale, for example, you need to connect. Right? Yeah. And and so. That's so you, have the to common a, you have to be aware of that, and you know you you could you could have the best product in the world, and if you can't really describe it to a customer, or the customer doesn't feel that they can trust you, yeah. uh, even if it's everything is perfect, you're not going to make the sale. So you have to actually adapt to that those cultural changes, and language is a big part of it. What well, what I've noticed in particular is that respect relationship between customer and service provider yeah. is, is more heightened, of course, because of the words you use for you yeah. in informal versus formal. Yeah. But also, um, when you're having a discussion in Spanish, there's a lot of, I'd say, like pre and post conversation filler, like in the way that you introduce yourself yeah. and and then, of course, the way that you transition yeah, away. Yeah, just like, the interaction how you say hi. Yeah. Right? right? Like if you are in Peru, for example, the hi will with a female, you give a kiss in the cheek, right? Like, if I did that in the U.S. when you say hi, it's like sexual harassment, right? Like, people in the U.S. like their personal space, yeah. right? But, like, if you give personal space with a hi in Latin America, it may even be offensive, like, hey, cold. you know, like, it's too cold, yeah. right? So you have to adapt to those things. But, you know, it's just like every culture. Like, it's funny you mentioned with the languages and how the, the grammar is set up. Like, I, I studied in a German school here in Lima. So when I talked to my, my dad, for example, who's speaking German, and our, you know, my, my brother and, or my sister, like, they speak German. They're German, right? They live in Berlin. And so I, I mean, you want to talk about grammar in German is very different and culturally, too. Yeah. Right. And so I haven't done a sale. Like we, we do have a customer in Germany, but I, I don't think I did that in German. Would you have the confidence to, to attempt to close a sale in German? I don't know. I don't think I. I think there are. I don't think I am yet. I think I could if I spend six more months there yeah. and I picked up the mannerisms uh-huh. of things. But like right now, at this stage, I would just regress back to like, okay, let's do this in language I feel comfortable with. Yeah. So you have to really adapt to that. On, on the topic of, of sales and confidence, I want to dive a bit deeper in that because sure. in the in the talk upstairs, yeah. you said something really interesting, which was that you had two investors. These were angel investors who had helped you think about closing deals much in, in value. Yeah. amounts much higher than you expected. If I recall correctly, these angel investors invested about 25,000 US a piece, yeah. each and helped you get the confidence and, and have that mindset to close yeah. a million dollar deal. Yeah, and more than that, actually. Um, so Christopher Mayer and Ken Arnold, those are two angels that uh, you know started working with us you know we have many investors and I love my investors great investors but, you know Ken and Chris spent a lot of time with us and with me personally right and they coached me through a whole bunch of things I mean Chris at one point 
when we were, we had a customer that we were doing a, you know, like we were gonna do a partnership deal. It was the first partnership deal, significant yeah. partnership deal that I was gonna sign. And you know, beyond just coming in and spending time with us and and you know training us, like just you know, th- seeing how we were thinking and everything. Chris went back and the next day came back with a full blown analysis of the cultural aspect of what my customer was. He gave me a PowerPoint with like. I don't know how many slides, but it was like, this is your customer. This is how they think of it. This is like what I found where culturally they really stick. They're very proud of how they do this manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. And it's something that they invented 15 years ago. And like, you should really touch upon this because it it resembles that. And like, you just do full blown analysis. And I was like, oh my God, like Chris just gave me the structure of like this is how I should approach all my other future important you know deals with customers where I do have to do an analysis not just of like how much money they make and like, yeah. what their budget is but like who they are as a company. It's like a holistic yeah. framework. That you use. Yeah, and so it, it was an eye opener for me. Mm-hmm. I had never seen anything like that. And then Ken. And this is in in SF, right? In SF, yeah, yeah they're based out of SF. And Ken did, uh, you know, something similar. You know, he Ken sold his company to Oracle, right? I think it was something like 500 million or something like that. And, you know, he just approaches sales. He's a very technical guy. He's an MIT guy. And he, he just, you know, told me a story about how, I mean, I started getting introduced to all these concepts, right? Like, Listen, I thought he said I thought I was a good salesperson until I had a guy that I paid X you know amounts of dollars for sales and you know when I was trying to close in hundreds of thousands of dollars, the guy was you know trying to close million dollar deals and I realized how bad of a salesperson you are. And he said, No, Raji, you suck as a salesperson. You know, and he was like, oh, What do you mean I suck as a salesperson? I'm like, You suck because you think. And I really liked that he did that. You know, because huh. it challenged, it challenged me to think like, wow, you know, why can't I close like a million dollar deal? I'm like, I think I can. It's just I have never like put that in, you know, a, just a proposal, right? And then, you know, Ken did a little details when I have my proposals and I had times. Ken yeah. told, taught me something else. Um, well, actually, Chris did this too. The demo together. He's like, Roger, look at your proposal. Your proposal has hours. Man, like, why are you putting values in hours? Like, you're crazy. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, this is how long it's going to take us to build this. It's like the moment that you put hours, the moment that you put hours, you're never charging for value. So what Ken was saying was, well, Ken and Chris were saying together is you can never charge for value if you're charging by the hours. If what you have is hours, right? And so that, that just changed my situation. Like never again would I in my proposal would I have a hourly stuff in there. So you just you switch to flat fee or well, it's not a flat fee. It's just how you think about it, right? Like if you're doing a two million dollar deal. Like, how many hours are you charging for, and what's your hourly rate? Like, how do you get to $2 million, right? And justify it. Because yeah. it's like, oh, is this really going to take you, I don't know, 200,000 hours? Or is it going to take you, you know, why don't you just do it for half, right? And they have an argument out of that. But you don't want to get in that conversation. 
you want to get in the conversation of what is the value that I'm giving to you? How much money am I making you or how much money I'm saving you? Yeah. That's it. And if you can do those things, then it doesn't matter if it takes you one hour or if it takes you three months or a year because you're selling by value, right? They're getting something out of it. You know, they're getting they're either making money or they're saving money, and it's a specific amount. It's your job to capture a percentage of that. And it's, it's an amount that they can agree on and you can, yeah. you Listen, can verify. If I can tell you something where I say I sell you this, you spend $100,000, and you know, you're going to save $3 million, then you're going to say yes. Yeah. You don't care if it takes me an hour or two hours or like no time. You're going to say yes because I'm bringing you something of value, right? And and so that, you know, I learned from them. Yeah. Right. So so as soon as that as soon as you started applying this new framework to your proposals, mm-hmm. how long did it take before you started noticing an impact? Um I think, you know, my pipeline was very light at the time, so it wasn't like a matter of like changing my mind, but like, you know, how the, the type of customers that fit that profile. But I would say within six months, I, would, I saw, or three months, I saw like me getting a little bit bolsier with my numbers, and they just kept increasing, right? So, so even after that conversation, the way that you approached customers was different. The way the for way sure. that you searched for customers for sure. was different. For sure. Well, the, a lot of the customers that we had earlier on, and you know, up to an extent still that what we have, they're inbound. Mm. And so, you know, they find us, but the way that you, that we qualify them, right, to figure out like, you know, what's the product that we're going to sell to them and, you know, which range of, because we have a whole range of products. Yeah. Some of them that are, you know, of the shelf SaaS and some of the shelf SaaS and some other stuff that is, you know, ready to make like you know some that some stuff that requires configuration. Yeah. Then that stuff is you know it's more costly because we have to you know customize it for them. But you know every time that you're selling like anything over, I would even say a few hundred thousand dollars like. You know, there's something of the workflow of the customer that's there that you just gotta need to adapt to. You know, unless you're Salesforce, I guess, where you just sell <laughs> for a certain amount of money, you don't customize anything. So, th- this seemed to be a, a really hyper valuable moment that you had with your investors. Yeah. And it was, you know, net positive for everyone. For sure. You also mentioned before in the talk upstairs about a, a really, I think, difficult period where sure. you had raised $850,000. Yeah, pretty much most of the round that we raised. After that, we had some loans that we paid back, but like that, it was most of the round in the convertible notes. And, and I, you're talking about the time when I say, oh, yeah, what was the most difficult thing? I'm like, it's not the most difficult thing in the startup. It's like the most difficult thing in my life. Right, huh. which was being in a position where I had people that had trusted me and they left jobs at good places, well-paid jobs to do this, you know, to join us. And, you know, also people, like if I go and I do a pitch to an investor, you know, like they're trusting me that I'm mm-hmm. going to give them a return. And then you see, oh, you spend all the money and the market fit is not quite there yet. And, and that's 
horrible, right? Like, it's a horrible feeling. It's like you feel like you failed everybody. So, so how long ago was that time period? It was uh, probably 2015. 2015. 2015. Okay. So four End years of ago. 2015, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And, um, 2016. I, I think I, I get to say it. 2016 was probably the most difficult year of my life, for sure. What, so, so when did you realize that you were going to have to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations. You just look at the bank account. You just look at the bank account, you look at the sales pipeline, and you see what the closing rate is. You know where it's going, right? So, um, but, you know, I, I try to look back and figure out, like, what are the things that, that made it so we could survive the whole area. All I remember was a difficult time mm. of my life. Did, did, did you have an executive coach or, or someone I mean, who would help you? I know, you? The, the angels that I mentioned, Ken and Chris, would come in every once in a while, and they think they even helped even more at that range, mm. I think. So you have certain investors that are active investors, other investors that are more passive. And nothing wrong with that, right? I think, you know, you learn to really appreciate the active ones. Even Was there another key lesson to learn other than the product market fit for for, what for that mean? time period? I mean, it's grit, right? I think every every uh, entrepreneur will tell you that you know when they go through the bad parts which happens, it's just grit. Learning grit is difficult. Like, it sounds so simple, right? Like, oh yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, listen, it would have been so easy to just this build, we're done. And that's it. You close it, close shop, right? Mm. And and then you just move on to another job and you recharge and you're in Silicon Valley, you're gonna pay a shitload of money for doing something. And and then recharge and you come back. But you know, it just didn't wanna do it. I think everybody in the at least the, the you know, my GIS director, my co founder and I, like we just said, let's just push through because we still have customers. Not enough to make it survive, but enough that I, I could see like, I just had to work three times as hard hmm. to get more customers, and and it was, and it was fine. I think you know now I look at back at that, and I'm actually really proud that I went through that. But I'm telling you, I don't know if most people can recognize what is the hardest moments of their life is like, you know? I mean, while they're living it? While they're living it, and even afterwards, like, I can easily point out, I mean, I mean, it may sound a little bit silly, but, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, like, my hardest time was when, you know, ex-family member died, and I've had family members died, and I, of course, I was super, super sad, and, you know, it's not like I'm a horrible person or anything, but, like, yeah, of course, I, I had people that have gone through diseases and stuff like I it's horrible right like I can think about lots of things but to me my horror story comes in like 2016 the whole year that mm. fucking was horrible it was a horrible year right and and just you know the outcome that we have now I'm, I'm pretty proud of it it's not like you know our billion dollar you know exit or whatever but Everybody makes money. You have an acquisition offer. No, we have an acquisition signed, right? Okay, well, congratulations. Thank you, yes. And so, I mean, this is, you know, going back to my angels that talk about, you know, Ken introduced me to multiple 
concept, right? Like, I think there's certain words that you hear and then you cannot unhear and you hear them all the time. Like, you're just talking like, hey, you know, this is, if you do these things, this is how you generate, you know, multi, multi-generational wealth, right? Like, multi-generational wealth. Like, you think I learned that concept in my 30s, right? Like, I've never really grasped, like, what it's, like, there's wealth and there's multi-generational wealth, you know? Wealth that will pass. Like, if you play your cards right and you do it correctly, it's just wealth that goes across generations, right? And I think most people in the world don't grasp that concept, right? They say, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a millionaire. I'm like, dude, a million dollars doesn't even buy you an apartment in San Francisco, man, right? A million dollars. You could be a millionaire and not be able to have a one-bedroom apartment in Soma. Like, that's not enough, right? Or two, like, maybe then you buy one and that's it. You're done, right? Like, that's all your money. Like, and you start talking about, like, multi-generational wealth. It's like, well, what does that look like? How is it that you structure your business, your earnings, and all these things so you can reach that? And it's, it's just a different way of thinking, right? And, and would you say that similar, you used a, a specific phrase, uh, learning grit. A grit, yeah. And, and would you say this is a similar um, a similar way of thinking about it, like learning the power, the potential of multi-generational wealth? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I've achieved it yet, right? I don't know if, you know, we're there yet, whatever my concept is of that, but... But I think that the beauty of Silicon Valley in general, right, yeah. is is that you get exposed, you know, even grit, right? Like going back to that phrase, I think most entrepreneurs will really understand. Most entrepreneurs yeah, in Silicon Valley, obviously, in other places too, but I think Silicon Valley and San Francisco, the Bay Area, these places are special because somebody will grasp like that what you mean by grit right the founder will grasp it mm. in other places i would say not the majority would but a, a founder in those areas does because you're just so surrounded and you see so much failure and you yeah. see so much success that you understand what that is like and once you live it then then it's just a different word it, it, there's so many words that are you know charged with so much emotion and meaning for me that's one of them right like when a new entrepreneur comes in and they're like oh yeah i have this idea i want to do these other things i'm like but i don't know if i should leave my job like like that's the first thing i don't know if i can get used to not working with this i'm like dude if that is your concern like whether you can live a year or not without (laughs) your job like you have no idea what you're getting into man and you're either gonna like you know, shine or whatever, or you're going to learn whether you have true grit, right? And that's... I, I, I think you make a great point about um, the Bay Area and access yeah. to communities and culture that can help elevate you, yeah. in a sense, because the best and the brightest are, are still drawn to yeah. the Bay Area. And when you're operating with people who are more experienced than you or more accomplished, which than feels you, like it's everybody, right? They, they they pull you up to their level. Yeah. They don't. Or at they least they pull you a little bit up high. I don't know if you're at their level, but they, <laughs> they pull you up higher. Yeah. Higher, for sure. Yeah. We can agree on that. 
and, and wondering if some of these experiences that you've had could have happened in other other ecosystems. Do you, do you want my honest answer? Like, I don't think they would have. Hmm. I don't think they would have. I mean, obviously, listen, you'll see a lot of articles of the ones that we're mentioning in Endeavor and all these spaces. Like, what's the next Silicon Valley, whatever. And of course, you can point out a lots of, I know lots of very smart people. They moved to Austin. There's a startup scene in Seattle. There's a startup scene in New York. There's a startup scene in Portland. Like, all the places that the Bay Area has been just spitting, spitting out because of all the gentrification and all the problems that we've been having there, right? Yeah, and so, you know, there's talent that goes everywhere else, but, you know, there's still a but there, like, but, like, it's different, man. Like, it's it's a very special place, and I, you know... Still the best place to network, still the best place to raise capital. I think so, right? Like, this is funny, because you heard one of the investors back up too said, it's like, hey, man, I would love to invest in your company, and say, yeah, of course, I would probably, you know, would do that. But, but I tell the other entrepreneurs, right? Like, if I'm going to raise money, I go where people are raising money. Like, why would I stick anywhere else? I just mm-hmm. go where people raise money. Yeah. Guess what? Because here, there's like less people here, meaning anywhere in the world. I'm not, yeah. I mean Lima specifically. Barriers, friction to the process. Like the competition is smaller, right? It's yeah. like, imagine, you know, I mean, you can think of it in many ways, right? Like if, if you're going to buy fruit, you can buy fruit at the supermarket store or your Whole Foods, or if like you have the chance of driving 10 minutes and go to the actual farmer. Right? Like the price are going to be different. The quality is going to be different. Like everything, the experience is going to be different. Sure. And so I can buy, like I'm in San Francisco, right? Like if I'm in San Francisco, I want to buy wine. I can buy wine at Whole Foods or, or Safeway or whatever. Or I can go buy wine in Sonoma, right? Or Napa Valley. Yeah. And yeah, the wine might be the same, but the experience, like everything, the, the, the wealth of difference, it's going to be completely different. So... Why would I say if, if we live in a global economy and you're competing globally, you're not competing in Lima, you want to be the best X company in you know Lima and when you're thinking about expanding, you're like, oh yeah, I'm expanding to San Isidro, Callao, whatever, you start putting all the small cities. Like you don't do that, right? Like you're competing in the world. And and so But that's a very different mindset. It is. And it is. that's not as common as like focusing on, on MIPES and PIMES, SMEs. Yeah, exactly. So that's something that has to change from here. I completely agree. Hmm. And it's just, you know, pounded on them when they tell me that. I'm like, so here I talk to 10 investors or 10 funds or whatever. And that's it. Those are my options. Or I get on a plane and 14 hours later, there's like thousands and thousands of funds, literally thousands of funds, where if I actually have a good value proposition and a good idea and whatever, like, you know, I could expose. Like, so guess where I'm more likely, just in pure numbers, more yeah. likely to find money, right? Like, I go to where all those guys are. And then the moment that, that I'm there, then I say, hey, where are the customers that I want? I can either go and compete in a market that is saturated, or I could compete in a market like Latin America where... I'm like the only guy here, right? Like selling this kind of software yeah. with AI and detection on, you know, automatic extraction and stuff. Like I can do, you know, calculations of, 
you know, production of a grape or whatever. I never heard of this. And then, you know, I'm like the only one. Of course I'm going to sell more. Of course I'm going to capture the market really quick. Is there also a challenge in ed educating the customer? For sure. On the solution you're offering? For sure. Especially if that customer doesn't even recognize yeah. that there's a problem or acknowledge that there's a problem? For sure, for sure. And, and that just happens everywhere, right? And I mean, there are cultural implications, right? Like you said, oh, Mexico is like, you know, very similar to Peru and Bolivia, Chile, whatever. No, right? Like, there's different levels of sophistication on in a particular vertical. You can find different levels of sophistication in different countries. Not that one is more than the other, whatever. Yeah, like, I'm sorry, this vertical in this country is way more advanced than the other vertical, the same vertical in this other country. It's just the way it is. And, and yeah, so that's, that's a good point. the sales cycle is going to be different. The sales process is going to be different. Um, and so then you have to ask yourself a question. Why am I trying to sell to this guy here that do I need to educate him? Or do I wait till they get educated and just jump on the plane and sell to this other guy over here? And I'm more of a mindset. I'm like, just jump on the plane, man. Go sell to the other guy. Why are you going to sell to the folks that don't even want don't to acknowledge yeah. or don't get it just sell to the ones that do there's so many customers in the world yeah right so just go sell to them latin america i think largely is overlooked or yeah. it's an afterthought yeah for many north americans for sure and coming from southeast asia orientation yeah which is advanced in some a lot of places yeah population wise similar about 630 to 650 million people. One of the advantages I see here is that, with the exception of Brazil, everyone speaks Spanish, yeah. at least in major urban areas. Yeah, so you would think that that maybe the marketing material and the stuff would be the same because you have one language and then you do all that, and we have... The words are different. The cultures, although there's an underlying yeah. shared component, nuances, Across, I think for certain markets, it's a huge advantage, and for other markets, it's not. Mm. And it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? You see Rappi, for example, here yeah. expanding like crazy right? because they get it. They do a little nuances, like they have a little details of the cultural things down, and they're expanding like crazy, but they don't have a full-blown competition from anywhere else, and they get first movers advantage. But, you know, you just, you know, and other things... And, that's consumer product, right? Like yeah. in, in B2B, like in a heavy tech thing, like for us, like, you know, the farms in the U.S. are going to be doing precision agriculture, for example. But the farms in, in Peru and other places are not. So then the question becomes, do you sell to the farms directly? I'm like, good luck, man. Or just sell to the government where they're happy. You know, innovation funds that can finance the stuff for the same farmers. So the Latin American governments. In Latin American governments, right? And so you, although the end user might be the same, the institution or the entity that you're selling yeah. to is completely different, right? And so the process is completely different. And then there's the legal, you know, nuances on how you set things up, right? Because if you're, you know foreign entity in certain cases you don't pay any taxes but in other cases you're gonna get taxed twice 
right? Hmm. Double the amount. And so how you structure those deals, it's also important to try to minimize the, the amount of, of risk. You know, you know, risk and also the tax hit that you get. You don't want to get taxed in the U.S. and here and there and everywhere at the same time at the end, you know. You're just getting 40%. Instead of your margin being 95%, your margin ends up being 40 right? Just because it's taxed everywhere. So you have to also understand what's a good, you know, tax revenue structure that you need to set up. And those are things that you just, you know, they're change. It's going to be different how I sell in, in the different countries in Latin America based on that. So yes. Of all the countries in Latin America, which, which one do you either have the most traction in or do you see the most potential in the future? I mean, they all have potential, right? And I would say you have to look at it from a population. Depends on the product that you have to see if you're going, if it's a consumer product, right? You just have to look at population. For your company specifically. For my company, I have to look at which ones are the companies that required more geospatial analytics, right? Who are, what are the, the countries that are more, you know, in, in which ones are the ones that understand that urban planning is important? Hmm. Which ones understand that keeping a cadastre up to date is important? Which ones understand that, you know, or care that, you know, they want to measure production of a certain kind of, 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 of uh, crop in agriculture? You know, which ones, and so it's, it's funny because the same technology applies to different places, but perfect example, right? Latin, like Peru has great stuff in mining, right? So illegal mining is important here, but illegal mining is not really important in, I don't know, just big Puerto, in Costa Rica. It's illegal mining is not important there, right? Legal mining is not going to be important in right now in Venezuela, no. But oil exploration might be, right? Anyway, Venezuela has other problems. It's a different situation. But you have to start thinking about those things, right? Yeah. Like it might be, you know, the Venezuela right now, for example, nobody looks at it as a market, and I understand that. But you could be preparing because that situation is going to change, right? As I understand folks are moving in purchasing homes. Oh, for and, sure. And but I'm saying like from a startup, I mean, unless your startup is purchasing homes, of course, right? But like if you're preparing it as a market, right? A market that used to have a big oil industry and you have some good value proposition for an oil company, you just have to wait three years and then just get in, boom, full on, or maybe less than that, right? And so there are things like that. There's invest, investments that come from the World Bank. Mm. Right for all the countries, and you just keep an eye on those, and you're like, oh, look, there's a whole bunch of investment in like urban planning for this, or disasters, man, disasters happen all the time. We had an earthquake yesterday, like mini earthquake here in Callao, right? People are like, oh my God, the earthquake was like, but Saturday it was a lot bigger. And, yeah, and you know you have like El Niño Costero, all these things with El Niño that yep. come in, and they. they those things are going to happen more. Like global warming is a real thing as much as, you know, you hear groups of people say, no, that's not real. So you know that those things are going to happen more. And the question is, like, if your software, your business can be used yeah. for, like, disaster prevention or during the disaster itself, well, you just have to be prepared. Right? Not that you want that to happen, but 
No, but you, you, yeah, but you you're just right. have to be prepared because it's going to happen. And once it happens... And you know it's going to happen. Yeah. You know it's going to happen. So there are budgets that are being released for those things to, to be prepared. And so, so on the topic of, of global warming, wondering if the dialogue that's been happening in the U.S. surprised you at all while you were living there? Or can, can you talk a bit how the U.S. or your time in SF has changed in 20, 21 years? Oh, yeah. You, you're talking about the last few years. exchange uh, that what you're talking about? Um, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult. I mean, obviously, I see a huge change culturally, right, in San Francisco in the past 10 years, for sure. But also, listen, you know, I was there pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Yeah. And those were very different eras, right? Like I think for everyone, right? And they sure. really grew up on that. Um, you're from New York, so you, I don't know if you grew up in New York, but if you yeah, did, I then did. Yeah. it's just like before and after, very clear. Yeah, um, I, I, I regret that younger generations of Americans won't know what it was like to live in the U.S. before September 11th because yeah. there was a, a, a definite shift in the mentalities and mindsets uh, among the people and of course that's reflected in the policies for sure foreign policies of, of the u.s for sure i think um in that scenario listen i mean the world as a whole is different not just the u.s because it like sure. it has implications for the rest of the world um you would there are implications in general for foreign policies that you know shifted regions that economically changed even development of Latin America, right? You know, for other places it might have been also really bad, right? Like in, in Middle East or whatever. There's a lot of focus there. Yeah. But you know, in Latin America, you actually see that you know. There's a spring <laughs> the other way, right, where things are good. And so I don't know if it's related or not. I don't even dare to, to question that um, or even put an opinion there. But what I would say is that there is, you know, the world is constantly changing. Wars are always happening. Global warming is things that are happening. You know, the, the effect of what you're talking about in in the U.S. with different policies, it's not just particular to the U.S. I mean, you see things like that, similar a resurgence in Germany. You see, a, you know, you see the Brexit stuff. Definitely. And, and like, so, so it, I wouldn't say it's just there. It's, it's ever in France, also a whole bunch of stuff related to that. And, and so I, I would just say, you know, we can always go back and say how beautiful Silicon Valley in San Francisco was before gentrification, the startup scene, everything. But then you will be not remembering the dot-com bust and people that were not having a good time during yeah. that, right? Yeah. And so, which by the way, you know, I lived in the U.S. through, through that stuff too. And so... Um, I, I think it, it's important to note then just just how how long of a trajectory your entrepreneurial journey has been related yeah. to SF. Yeah. Um, but I didn't live in the US, uh, in SF during that time, but I was like reading and learning about that stuff, right? But I saw it. I saw it because people were dropping in college and moving over there and to do things. And 
I, listen, I mean, the story of all the Bay Area and Silicon Valley is very long. We, we saw some of that presentation. And yeah, that's just decades. Like scratching yeah. the surface. And, you know, it's, it's ecosystems, spring. I don't think you're going to see something like that spring anywhere else. I think people want to be optimistic and try to analyze it and mm-hmm. nitpick mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. about, you know, how that grew and the connections and the you know, whatever, ex-company mafia and, like, the semiconductors. And you can dissect all that stuff, yeah. but there is something very special and very unique about that that I honestly don't think can be reproduced anywhere else. I think that you can have different versions of it, things For that sure. are, you know, maybe even better or different, but you cannot reproduce that. I mean, you can even think about how the, the money for a lot of that stuff comes in and it comes with a lot of funding from for uh, you know defense right yeah. like what other place do you also okay so you want to reproduce the connectivity and the network of this person investing that okay so who else has that kind of budget for defense in any country combined like even if you want to combine it right like yeah. I'm sorry like there's not that much money being spent in there like like you know Palantir just can only grow in Silicon Valley with funding from defense of that kind. Like, you're not going to have that, right? Um, and, and this is, I think, an example of, of government supporting innovation. For sure. It's usually... For sure. Well, I mean, self-driving cars, the DARPA challenge, like the creation of the internet, yeah. right? Like, all that stuff requires a funding on a level that you can only get in in certain ecosystems, right? And yeah. you have to recognize we can always be negative about, you know, defense in this way or that way, but you have to recognize that you wouldn't have that stuff in there. Wi-Fi, man, I mean, I can just go on to a whole bunch of things that exist because of that, right? I think it's easy to forget in today's narrative, especially yeah, with the sure. anti-globalization rhetoric yeah, that, but, that has emerged. Yeah. As, as we draw to a close, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, talk about anything that I didn't ask you that you want to mention, whether it's about you, uh, your company, uh, Lima, Peru, your time in, in the U.S., um, or what's the, for example, as, as an alternative, what's the best advice that you've ever gotten? Oh, I don't know what's the best advice that I've ever gotten. People have advised me a whole bunch of things, and <laughs> a lot of probably good advice I've, I've ignored. I'm pretty sure I'm a little bit hard-headed that way. Um, but I guess maybe what we do, I should have mentioned what we do, right? So we do maps, and we do maps in the cloud, and we concentrate on two things. We concentrate on mobile for doing data collection, and we concentrate on on all the geoanalytics, what you do after you collect all that. Um, and for us, you know, as a company, I think we're in a very exciting time because we're seeing the how we can apply just like, you know, weapons in general. Like mm. you can, you know, there are certain technologies that are used for weapons, but you can adapt them to something else. And I think with GIS and maps and stuff, I think, you know, a lot of funding for that just in the same topic that we were talking about before came in from defense. I mean, I used to work at Esri, and a lot of our money, even if they go and say other stuff, came from defense. I was there, right? Like, I saw defense. But 
I think for us as a company in all the mapping space, I, I see a lot of potential how we can, you know, improve municipalities for getting more more money instead of going and begging people for it. Like they can increase the revenue by improving, you know, like their inventory and the cadastres. I see a lot of potential. Yeah. What we're doing with disaster response because we're gonna have more disasters coming in. Right. I see a lot of stuff for, you know, doing just good work in general. So I'm I'm really excited and I hope I can only hope that the governments of my own country realize the potential there because I think they still have not. Hmm. Um, and, and do you think that's just lack of awareness or focusing on other in their minds more pressing priorities? You know when you're doing a company you can focus on the today and you can focus on the future you should always focus on both like you have to focus on the day-to-day but you cannot just do day-to-day you have to look at the future right i i think that sadly um a lot of the stuff that i see in the government in my own country is that they don't focus on the future Hmm. and a problem with that is i mean it's just clear right like you see a big project where they're building a new road, right? And so when you're building a new road, you it's, it might be a 10-year or 15-year project, right? And if you're doing a 10 or 15-year project, you have to ask yourself, what does the world look like 10 or 15 years from now? When you finish. Right, not when you're building it right now. Yeah. And, and those are projects that cost a lot of money. There's a lot of investment for them. And I don't see them looking at that, right? I see them looking at, hey, you know, this is what we need now. And, you know, they started the project now, they finished it in 15 years, but it's what they wish they had right now. Yeah. I'm like, so what they okay, should have started 10, 15 years yeah, ago. Yeah, but, you know, remember how it was, how the world was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, not everybody here had smartphones. In the U.S., they might, you yeah. know, most of them. But now everybody has smartphones everywhere. Right? So like you have to be planning for what it looks like when you have data needs of that kind. With cars, uh-huh. my friends do companies for self-driving cars, and they sell them right to, to other places. And like I see when I was looking outside my apartment, you know, the Uber cars and Waymos and all that self-driving cars, they drive by themselves. Do, right? do, you, do you miss seeing those moments of inspiration? I do, I do. But, but you know, those are inspiration then, and when I come here, they're frustration for the same stuff that I see. I'm like, dude, how can you not be planning for self-driving cars everywhere in 15 years? Is this the infrastructure that you need to be building? When like when you finish, and you have all these things there, do you realize that we're gonna have a different economy of like subscription-based cars? People might not even be buying cars. It's subscription-based, right? It's what Uber and Lyft and everybody's pointing to. Because you know that you're going to buy your Netflix plan of cars. So I i don't own a car, right? I don't have a beer. I don't know. I use Uber all the time or, or you know, whatever. Beat Taxi Beat or whatever. It's in here, right? And, and so yeah. why, like, it's clear to know that I'm going to buy a subscription for, like, I don't know. 300 hours uh, a month of cars and it's going to cost me this and all the cars are going to talk to each other and yeah. they're going to drive it themselves. That's not the project that they're building that they're going to finish 15 years from now. And, and do you think they can't picture that? Just 
focusing on the today, on the today, the day to day, and not focusing on the future. So they have maybe they haven't even thought of it. No. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great point, uh, Raji, especially because things will change. I think both more quickly and more slowly than we think. And to give you an example, like the mobile penetration rates in places like that's a um, given. I mean, like I, I already in other places, not not in Peru, um, Kenya. I'm thinking of mobile yeah. payments, yeah. Myanmar, mobile penetration rates. And here in, in, in Peru, we were talking about fintech at the fintech forum. Yeah, those changes are, are, are definitely coming. For sure. And there's 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 no doubt about that. And it's it's I think part of the responsibility lies in the public sector to have that vision of what is going to what the infrastructure is going to be like. Yeah. Um, and to set the table, if you will, so that the private sector can do what they do best. Yeah, but I think the advantage that some of the other countries have. The advantages some of the other countries have in the rest of the world is that they think it through. It's totally cultural. Mm. Right? Like it's not smarter it's or less in. smart. It's not like more abilities. It's like, it's cultural. Right? You can think, you can see that also in, in things like, you know, in the U.S. and other places, people plan for retirement, right? Like, so you're thinking about the future. Yeah. You have retirement accounting about for that. In other places, you know, like, sadly, in my country, people don't plan for that, right? So there's no planning for the future. It's just like now. And are your are your children expected to take care of you after a certain age? Yeah, I think what the most people do, and in fact, a lot of you know, we have people that work with us who still live at home stuff, right? Mm. It doesn't matter how much money they make. It doesn't matter if they actually make the most amount of money that anybody else, they live at home. It's just cultural. Yeah. Net, like purely cultural. And and so I mean those are that you asked me, I mean going back to the question you asked me originally and my kind of things that you're adapting to, I'm like, yeah, that's a that's a Quite a few of them, right? This is culture. Yeah. Like I am Peruvian. I feel Peruvian. I this is my country, this is my home. This is what I am. But at the same time, you know, I'm looking at it with different eyes, and and it's uh, you know, I see so much potential everywhere, and so many opportunities. I mean, like this is a place to, to make money, like a lot of stuff. And that that's the spirit that you have currently now that you're back. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be disappointed with a whole bunch of things. I'm sure, you know, like, you know, like I was disappointed also in the U.S. with a lot of changes <laughs> in the past few years. But yeah, it's um, it's definitely uh, been been a, a clear departure from, I think, the, the norm in, yeah, for in sure. politics. Yeah, for sure. No question. Um, in certain areas. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens I'll next year out. with the election. But yeah, no, it, it's great to hear about your your return to Peru or your yeah. reintegration, reintegration into Peru. Today. And of course, uh, I wish you the best. I'll be looking forward to um, seeing the official news as it's released uh, on the yeah. acquisition. Yeah. And uh, all the best for the future. Thanks so much for your time Thank and you. for uh, joining. Yeah, Raji. my really pleasure. Appreciate Thank it. you. Thanks. My conversation with Raji was one of my favorite interviews this season. I was struck by how frank Raji was in assessing the startup challenges in Peru and Latin America, especially through the lens of his experiences in Silicon Valley. After talking to Raji, it was clear that he could see the impact of exponential technologies in Peru, his homeland. 
That future orientation and vision is so valuable when paired with a robust transnational professional network, deep tech experience, and supportive personal relationships. The startup ecosystem in Peru is stronger because of his presence there. I hope you'll join us next week when I examine another element of Peru's startup ecosystem, an accelerator with a special focus on edtech or education technology. In the meantime, feel free to reach out directly to me if you'd like to learn more information about the Planetary Potential podcast or if you'd like to learn more about upcoming interviews. Thank you.